0: Volume number one, chapter thirteen of Rob Roy This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott, Volume one, Chapter thirteen. Dire was his thought who first in poison steeped the weapon formed for slaughter, direer his and worthier of damnation, who instilled the mortal venom in the social cup to fill the veins with death instead of life. Anonymous Upon my word, Mr. Francis Osbaldistone, said Miss Vernon, with the air of one who thought herself fully entitled to assume the privilege of ironical reproach, which she was pleased to exert, your character improves upon us, sir. I could not have thought that it was in you. Yesterday might be considered as your assay-piece to prove yourself entitled to be free of the corporation of Osbaldistone Hall, but it was a masterpiece. I am quite sensible of my ill-breeding, Miss Vernon, and I can only say for myself that I had received some communications by which my spirits were unusually agitated. I am conscious I was impertinent and absurd." "'Oh, you do yourself great injustice!' said the merciless monitor. You have contrived by what i saw and have since heard to exhibit in the course of one evening a happy display of all the various masterly qualifications which distinguish your several cousins the gentle and generous temper of the benevolent rashleigh the temperance of percy the cool courage of Thorncliff, john's skill in dog-breaking dickens aptitude to betting all exhibited by the single individual mr francis and that with a selection of time, place, and circumstance, worthy, the taste, and sagacity of the sapient Wilfred. Have a little mercy, Miss Vernon, said I, for I confess I thought of the schooling as severe as the case merited, especially considering from what quarter it came, and forgive me if I suggest, as an excuse for follies I am not usually guilty of, the custom of this house and country. I am far from approving of it. But we have Shakespeare's authority for saying that good wine is a good familiar creature, and that any man living may be overtaken at some time. Aye, Mr. Francis, but he places the panegyric and the apology in the mouth of the greatest villain his pencil has drawn. I will not, however, abuse the advantage your quotation has given me by overwhelming you with the refutation with which the victim, Cassio, replied to the tempter, Iago. I only wish you to know that there is one person at least, sorry to see a youth of talents and expectations, sink into the slough in which the inhabitants of this house are nightly wallowing. I have but wet my shoe, I assure you, Miss Vernon, and am too sensible of the filth of the puddle to step further in. If such be your resolution, she replied, it is a wise one, but I was so much vexed at what I heard that your concerns have pressed before my own. You behaved to me yesterday during dinner as if something had been told you which lessened or lowered me in your opinion. I beg leave to ask you what it was. I was stupefied. The direct bluntness of the demand was much in the style one gentleman uses to another when requesting explanation of any part of his conduct in a good-humoured yet determined manner and it was totally devoid of the circumlocutions, shadings, softenings, and periphrases which usually accompany explanations betwixt persons of different sexes in the higher orders of society. I remained completely embarrassed, for it pressed on my recollection that Rashley's communications, supposing them to be correct, ought to have rendered Miss Vernon rather an object of my compassion than of my pettish resentment. And Had they furnished the best apology possible for my own conduct, still I must have had the utmost difficulty in detailing what inferred such necessary and natural offence to Miss Fernand's feelings. She observed my hesitation, and proceeded in a tone somewhat more peremptory, but still temperate and civil. I hope Mr. Osbaldistone does not dispute my title to request this explanation. I have no relative who can protect me. It is therefore just that I be permitted to protect myself. I endeavoured with hesitation to throw the blame of my rude behaviour upon indisposition, upon disagreeable letters from London. She suffered me to exhaust my apologies, and fairly to run myself aground, listening all the while with a smile of absolute incredulity. And now, Mr. Francis, having gone through your prologue of excuses, with the same bad grace with which all prologues are delivered, please to draw the curtain, and show me that which I desire to see in a word Let me know what Rashley says of me, for he is the grand engineer and first mover of all the machinery of Osbaldistone Hall. But supposing there was anything to tell, Miss Vernon, what does he deserve that betrays the secrets of one ally to another? Rashley, you yourself told me, remained your ally, though no longer your friend. I have neither patience nor evasion nor inclination for jesting on the present subject, "'Rashley cannot, ought not, dare not hold any language respecting me, Diana Vernon, but what I may demand to hear repeated, that there are subjects of secrecy and confidence between us is most certain, but to such his communications to you could have no relation, and with such I, as an individual, have no concern. I had by this time recovered my presence of mind, and hastily determined to avoid making any disclosure of what Rashley had told me, in a sort of confidence there was something unworthy in retailing private conversation it could i thought do no good and must necessarily give miss vernon great pain i therefore replied gravely that nothing but frivolous talk had passed between mr rashleigh of and me on the state of the family at the hall and i protested that nothing had been said which left a serious impression to her disadvantage As a gentleman, I said, I could not be more explicit in reporting private conversation. She started up with the animation of a Camilla about to advance into battle. This shall not serve your turn, sir. I must have another answer from you. Her features kindled, her brow became flushed, her eyes glanced wildfire as she proceeded. I demand such an explanation, as a woman basely slandered has a right to demand from every man who calls himself a gentleman, as a creature— motherless, friendless, alone in the world, left to her own guidance and protection, has a right to require from every being having a happier lot, in the name of that God who sent them into the world to enjoy and her to suffer. You shall not deny me, or, she added, looking solemnly upwards, you will rue your denial, if there is justice for wrong either on earth or in heaven. I was utterly astonished at her vehemence, but felt, thus conjured, that it became my duty to lay aside scrupulous delicacy and gave her briefly but distinctly the heads of the information which Rashleigh had conveyed to me she sat down and resumed her composure as soon as i entered upon the subject and when i stopped to seek for the most delicate turn of expression she repeatedly interrupted me with go on pray go on the first word which occurs to you is the plainest and must be the best do not think of my feelings but speak as you would to an unconcerned third party thus urged and encouraged i stammered through all the account which rashleigh had given of her early contract to marry an osbaldistone and of the uncertainty and difficulty of her choice and there i would willingly have paused but her penetration discovered that there was still something behind and even guessed to what it related well it was ill-natured of rashleigh to tell this tale on me i am like the poor girl in the fairy tale who was betrothed in her cradle to the black bear of norway but complained chiefly of being called Bruin's bride by her companions at school. But, besides all this, Rashleigh said something of himself with relation to me, did he not? Well, he certainly hinted that, were it not for the idea of supplanting his brother, he would now, in consequence of his change of profession, be desirous that the word Rashley should fill up the blank in the dispensation instead of the word Thorncliffe. Ah, oh, indeed! she replied. Was he so very condescending? Too much honour for his humble handmaid, Diana Vernon? And she, I suppose, was to be enraptured with joy. Could such a substitute be effected? Well, to confess the truth he intimated as much, and even farther insinuated, What? What? Let me hear it all, she exclaimed hastily. Well, that he had broken off your mutual intimacy— lest it should have given rise to an affection by which his destination to the church would not permit him to profit.' "'Well, I am obliged to him for his consideration,' replied Miss Vernon. Every feature of her fine countenance taxed to express the most supreme degree of scorn and contempt. She paused a moment, and then said with her usual composure, "'There is but little I have heard from you which I did not expect to hear, and which I ought not to have expected.' because, baiting one circumstance, it is all very true. But as there are some poisons so active that a few drops, it is said, will infect a whole fountain, so there is one falsehood in Rashley's communication, powerful enough to corrupt the whole well in which truth herself is said to have dwelt. It is the leading and foul falsehood that, knowing Rashley as I have reasoned too well to know him, any circumstance on earth could make me think of sharing my lot with him, no she continued with a sort of inward shuddering that seemed to express involuntary horror any lot rather than that the sot the gambler the bully the jockey the insensate fool were a thousand times preferable to Rashleigh. the convent the jail the grave shall be welcome before them all there was a sad and melancholy cadence in her voice corresponding with the strange and interesting romance of her situation so young so beautiful so untaught so much abandoned to herself and deprived of all the support which her sex derives from the countenance and protection of female friends and even of that degree of defence which arises from the forms with which the sex are approached in civilized life it is a scarce metaphorical to say that my heart bled for her yet there was an expression of dignity in her contempt of ceremony of upright feeling in her disdain of falsehood A firm resolution in the manner in which she contemplated the dangers by which she was surrounded, which blended my pity with the warmest admiration. She seemed a princess deserted by her subjects and deprived of her power, yet still scorning those formal regulations of society which are created for persons of an inferior rank, and amid her difficulties relying boldly and confidently on the justice of heaven and the unshaken constancy of her own mind. I offered to express the mingled feelings of sympathy and admiration with which her unfortunate situation and her high spirit combined to impress me, but she imposed silence on me at once. I told you in jest, she said, that I disliked compliments. I now tell you in earnest that I do not ask sympathy, and that I despise consolation. What I have borne, I have borne. What I am to bear, I will sustain as I may. No word of commiseration can make a burden feel any feather lighter to the slave who must carry it. There is only one human being who could have assisted me, and that is he who has rather chosen to add to my embarrassment. Rashleigh Osbaldistone. Yes, the time once was that I might have learned to love that man, but great God! The purpose for which he insinuated himself into the confidence of one already so forlorn, THE UNDEVIATING AND CONTINUED ASSIDUITY WITH WHICH HE PURSUED THAT PURPOSE FROM YEAR TO YEAR, WITHOUT ONE SINGLE MONETARY PAUSE OF REMORSE OR COMPASSION, THE PURPOSE FOR WHICH HE WOULD HAVE CONVERTED INTO POISON THE FOOD HE ADMINISTERED TO MY MIND. GRACIOUS PROVIDENCE! WHAT SHOULD I HAVE BEEN IN THIS WORLD, AND THE NEXT, IN BODY AND SOUL, had I FALLEN UNDER THE ARTS OF THIS ACCOMPLISHED VILLAIN? I was so much struck with the scene of perfidious treachery with which these words disclosed, that I rose from my chair hardly knowing what I did, laid my hand on the hilt of my sword, and was about to leave the apartment in search of him on whom I might discharge my just indignation. Almost breathless, and with eyes and looks in which scorn and indignation had given way to the most lively alarm, Miss Vernon threw herself between me and the door of the apartment. "'Stay,' she said, "'stay!' However, just your resentment, you do not know half the secrets of this fearful prison-house. She then glanced her eyes anxiously round the room, and sunk her voice almost to a whisper. He bears a charmed life. You cannot assail him without endangering other lives and wider destruction. Had it been otherwise, in some hour of justice he had hardly been safe, even from this weak hand. I told you, she said, motioning me back to my seat, that I needed no comforter. I now tell you. I need no avenger." I resumed my seat mechanically, musing on what she said, and recollecting also what had escaped me in my first glow of resentment, that I had no title whatever to constitute myself Miss Vernon's champion. She paused to let her own emotions and mind subside, and then addressed me with more composure. I have already said that there is a mystery connected with Rashleigh, of a dangerous and fatal nature. "'Villain as he is, and as he knows he stands convicted in my eyes, "'I cannot, I dare not, openly break with or defy him. "'You also, Mr. Osbaldistone, must bear with him, but with patience, "'foil his artifices by opposing to them prudence, not violence, "'and above all, you must avoid such scenes as that of last night, "'which cannot but give him perilous advantages over you.' this caution i designed to give you and it was the object with which i desired this interview but i have extended my confidence farther than i proposed i assured her that it was not misplaced i do not believe that it is she replied you have that in your face and manners which authorizes trust let us continue to be friends you need not fear she said laughing while she blushed a little yet speaking with a free and unembarrassed voice you need not fear that friendship with us should prove only a specious name as the poet says for another feeling i belong in habits of thinking and acting rather to your sex with which i have always been brought up than to my own besides the fatal veil was wrapped round me in my cradle for you may easily believe i have never thought of the detestable condition under which i may remove it the time she added for expressing my final determination has not arrived and I would fain have the freedom of wild heath and open air with the other commoners of nature, as long as I can be permitted to enjoy them. And now that the passage in Dante is made so clear, pray go and see what has become of the badger baiters, my head aches so much that I cannot join the party. I left the library, but not to join the hunters. I felt that a solitary walk was necessary to compose my spirit, before I again trusted myself in Rashley's company whose depth of calculating villainy had been so strikingly exposed to me. In Duborg's family, as he was of the reformed persuasion, I had heard many a tale of Romish priests who gratified at the expense of friendship, hospitality, and the most sacred ties of social life, those passions, the blameless indulgence of which is denied by the rules of their order. But the deliberate system of undertaking the education of a deserted orphan of noble birth, and so intimately allied to his own family, with the perfidious purpose of ultimately seducing her, detailed as it was by the intended victim with all the glow of virtuous resentment, seemed more atrocious to me than the worst of the tales I had heard at Bordeaux, and I felt it would be extremely difficult for me to meet rashly, and yet to suppress the abhorrence with which he impressed me. Yet this was absolutely necessary, not only on account of the mysterious charge which Diana had given me, but because i had in reality no ostensible ground for quarrelling with him i therefore resolved as far as possible to meet rashleigh's dissimulation with equal caution on my part during our residence in the same family and when he should depart for london i resolved to give owen at least such a hint of his character as might keep him on his guard over my father's interests avarice or ambition i thought might have as great or greater charms for a mind constituted like rashleigh's than unlawful pleasure the energy of his character, and his power of assuming all seeming good qualities were likely to procure him a high degree of confidence, and it was not to be hoped that either good faith or gratitude would prevent him from abusing it. The task was somewhat difficult, especially in my circumstances, since the caution which I threw out might be imputed to jealousy of my rival, or rather my successor, in my father's favour. Yet I thought it absolutely necessary to frame such a letter leaving it to Owen, who in his own line was wary, prudent, and circumspect, to make the necessary use of his knowledge of Rashley's true character. Such a letter, therefore, I indicted and dispatched to the post-house by the first opportunity. At my meeting with Rashley, he, as well as I, appeared to have taken up distant ground, and to be disposed to avoid all pretext for collision. He was probably conscious that Miss Vernon's communications had been unfavourable to him, though he could not know that they extended to discovering his meditated villainy towards her. Our intercourse, therefore, was reserved on both sides, and turned on subjects of little interest. Indeed, his stay at Osbaldistone Hall did not exceed a few days after this period, during which I only remarked two circumstances respecting him. The first was the rapid and almost intuitive manner in which his powerful and active mind seized upon and arranged the elementary principles necessary to his new profession, which he now studied hard, and occasionally made parade of his progress, as if to show me how light it was for him to lift the burden which I had flung down from very weariness and inability to carry it. The other remarkable circumstance was that, notwithstanding the injuries with which Miss Vernon charged rashly, they had several private interviews together of considerable length, although their bearing toward each other in public did not seem more cordial than usual. When the day of Rashley's departure arrived, his father bade him farewell with indifference, his brothers with the ill-concealed glee of schoolboys who see their taskmaster depart for a season, and feel a joy which they dare not express, and I myself with cold politeness. When he approached Miss Vernon, and would have saluted her, she drew back with a look of haughty disdain, but said as she extended her hand to him, Farewell, Rashley. God reward you for the good you have done, and forgive you for the evil you have meditated. Amen, my dear cousin, he replied with an air of sanctity, which belonged, I thought, to the seminary of St. Omers. Happy is he whose good intentions have borne fruit in deeds, and whose evil thoughts have perished in the blossom. These were his parting words. Accomplished hypocrite, said Miss Vernon to me, as the door closed behind him. How nearly can what we most despise and hate approach an outward manner to that which we most venerate? I had written to my father by Rashleigh, and also a few lines to Owen besides the confidential letter which I have already mentioned, and which I thought it more proper and prudent to despatch by another conveyance. In these epistles it would have been natural for me to have pointed out to my father and my friend that I was at present in a situation where I could improve myself in no respect unless in the mysteries of hunting and hawking, and where I was not unlikely to forget, in the company of rude grooms and horse-boys, any useful knowledge or elegant accomplishments which I had hitherto acquired. It would also have been natural that I should have expressed the disgust and tedium which I was likely to feel among beings whose whole souls were centred in field-sports or more degrading pastimes, that I should have complained of the habitual intemperance of the family in which I was a guest, and the difficulty and almost resentment with which my uncle, Sir Hildebrand, received any apology for deserting the bottle. This last, indeed, was a topic on which my father, himself a man of severe temperance, was likely to be easily alarmed, and to have touched upon this spring would to a certainty have opened the doors of my prison-house, and would either have been the means of abridging my exile, or at least would have procured me a change of residence during my rustication. I say, my dear Tresham, that, considering how very unpleasant a prolonged residence at our Baldestown Hall must have been to a young man of my age, and with my habits, it might have seemed very natural that I should have pointed out all these disadvantages to my father, in order to obtain his consent for leaving my uncle's mansion. Nothing, however, is more certain than that I did not say a single word to this purpose in my letters to my father and Owen if osbaldistone hall had been athens in all its pristine glory of learning and inhabited by sages heroes and poets i could not have expressed less inclination to leave it if thou hast any of the salt of youth left in thee tresham thou wilt be at no loss to account for my silence on a topic seemingly so obvious miss vernon's extreme beauty of which she herself seemed so little conscious her romantic and mysterious situation the evils to which she was exposed the courage with which she seemed to face them her manners more frank than belonging to her sex yet as it seemed to me exceeding in frankness only from the dauntless consciousness of her innocence above all the obvious and flattering distinction which she made in my favour over all other persons were at once calculated to interest my best feelings to excite my curiosity, awaken my imagination, and gratify my vanity. I dared not indeed confess to myself the depth of the interest with which Miss Vernon inspired me, or the large share which she occupied in my thoughts. We read together, walked together, rode together, and say together. The studies which she had broken off upon her quarrel with Rashleigh, she now resumed under the auspices of a tutor whose views were more sincere though his capacity was far more limited. In truth I was by no means qualified to assist her in the prosecution of several profound studies which she had commenced with rashly, and which appeared to me more fitted for a churchman than for a beautiful female. Neither can I conceive with what view he should have engaged Diana in the gloomy maze of casuistry which schoolmen called philosophy or in the equally abstruse, though more certain, sciences of mathematics and astronomy, unless it were to break down and confound in her mind the difference and distinction between the sexes, and to habituate her to trains of subtle reasoning by which he might at his own time invest that which is wrong with the colour of that which is right. It was in the same spirit, though in the latter case the evil purpose was more obvious, that the lessons of Rashley had encouraged Miss Vernon in setting at naught and despising the forms and ceremonial limits which are drawn round females in modern society. It is true she was sequestered from all female company, and could not learn the usual rules of decorum, either from example or precept, yet such was her innate modesty and accurate sense of what was right and wrong, that she would not of herself have adopted the bold, uncompromising manner which struck me with so much surprise on our first acquaintance had she not been led to conceive that a contempt of ceremony indicated at once superiority of understanding and the confidence of conscious innocence. Her wily instructor had no doubt his own views in leveling those outworks which reserve and caution erect around virtue, but for these and for his other crimes he has long since answered at a higher tribunal. Besides the progress which Miss Vernon, whose powerful mind readily adopted every means of information offered to it, had made in more abstract science, I found her no contemptible linguist, and well acquainted both with ancient and modern literature. Were it not that strong talents will often go farthest when they seem to have least assistance, it would be almost incredible to tell the rapidity of Miss Vernon's progress in knowledge. And it was still more extraordinary when her stock of mental acquisitions from books was compared with her total ignorance of actual life. It seemed as if she saw and knew everything except what passed in the world around her. And I believe it was this very ignorance and simplicity of thinking upon ordinary subjects, so strikingly contrasted with her fund of general knowledge and information, which rendered her conversation so irresistibly fascinating, and riveted the attention to whatever she said or did, since it was absolutely impossible to anticipate whether her next word or action was to display the most acute perception or the most profound simplicity. The degree of danger which necessarily attended a youth of my age and keen feelings from remaining in close and constant intimacy with an object so amiable and so peculiarly interesting, all who remember their own sentiments at my age may easily estimate End of Volume 1, Chapter 13, Recording by Mike Harris